Hear the word of God from John, chapter 14, verse 27, and Isaiah, chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. This reading comes from the New Revised Standard Version and can be found in the Pew Bibles on pages 877 and 558, respectively. From John, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled, and do not let them be afraid. And from Isaiah, The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. These two scripture texts, the first from Isaiah, the second from John, were written about 800 years apart, but they both offer a perspective of peace and offer a perspective on peace that are two sides of the same coin. The first is about global peace, a resolving of international conflict. The second is about the resolving of conflict within one's own heart. And together they remind us that you cannot have one without the other. Isaiah was written in a time of global conflict when empires were at war and nations were struggling against nation and the people of God were lost and confused in exile. The second, from John, was written not in a public setting, but in the most private and most tender setting of all, a conversation between Jesus and his friends on the night before he would die, knowing that they would be facing certain adversity and trouble within their own spirits. If the text from Isaiah is about peace in the world and the text from John is about peace in our hearts, we come to realize you cannot have one without the other. They are two sides of the same coin. And of course, you would note, as well as I would, that on this second Sunday of Advent, we long for peace on both fronts. We know how much the world is in need of peace today, just based on the headlines that pass before our purview, moment by moment, day after day, in a time of rising concern about stability and peace in the Middle East, particularly in the wake of the announcement to observe Jerusalem as the capital of Israel, in a time when there are rising tensions with North, North Korea and concern about the development of nuclear technology. And of course, in a time when our country seems so bitterly divided by partisan politics and the ability for any of us to have civil conversations with people who are on the other side of the political spectrum as, as we are seem like a far-fetched idea. And so when we 
come to this text in Isaiah and we hear the words of the prophet that someday there will be a day when the wolves and the lambs will lie together and calves and lions will coexist peacefully and when children or snakes will be able to play together, we think that that kind of peace is a far-fetched idea indeed. We try to imagine a time when all of this global unrest will be laid aside and it is hard to do so. But then we get to the text in John and we discover that the key to finding lasting peace in the world is first finding peace in our own hearts. It is there when Jesus was talking to his disciples knowing that there would be a time when the disciples would face all kind of adversity, when they would face persecution and threats by their enemies, by those who would despise them and want them dead. Jesus left them this assurance. You will have peace. Peace in your hearts is possible. And it won't be a peace that the world can give you, but it will be a peace that God alone can give you. A peace that will enable you to overcome your fears. A peace that would enable you to remain calm and confident in the face of adversity and threats by others. It would even be a peace that would enable you to forgive and do the hard work of reconciling broken relationships with other people. These two texts together remind us that to have a world of peace, we must have hearts of peace. And the only way to have a heart of peace is to reconcile our differences with one another. This kind of peace is not simply the absence of conflict. This kind of peace is not simply the absence of war. Instead, it is a commitment to the hard work, to the process that is necessary that will forge forgiveness, new understanding, justice, and ultimately equality among all people. But this peace is hard. This peace is hard work. You and I well know that this world is full of conflict and as hard as it might be to imagine an end to the global hot spots in the world, it is even harder to imagine an end to the conflict that is within your own spirit this morning. It is easy for many of us to simply fill in the blank right now in this room of the many ways that our hearts are conflicted, fearful of our future, plagued by tension and strife in our relationships, even in conflict within our own selves about who we are and what we're called to be. It's hard enough to think about a world at peace, but when it comes to thinking about your heart at peace, it's almost impossible to imagine. And that's why, that's why when we get those rare occasions of hearing stories of of people being reconciled to one another, of warring factions and people in conflict finding a way to make it work and discover peace that is within their relationship, when we discover that kind of peace, The only way to describe it is with wonder and awe. And so for these two stories that I'm going to share with you this morning, each of them 
Remarkable stories of warring people who found peace with each other and peace within themselves. It's a reminder to us that even though peace is hard work, peace is possible in the light of Jesus. The first story comes to us from Northern Ireland. As some of you know, back in October, I spent a week in Belfast in Northern Ireland with many clergy colleagues from this conference Recent history would remind us that the people of Northern Ireland for a very long time were a people embroiled in deep, violent conflict. For 30 years, toward the end of the 20th century, they were engulfed by a civil war between two factions. The first, the Unionists, Protestants by and large, loyal to the authority of England. On the other side, the Nationalists, Catholics, loyal to the rule of Ireland. As these two factions were engulfed in war, it posed citizen against citizen, brother against brother, neighborhoods, communities divided in half by these violent outbreaks all throughout the country, particularly in Belfast. Over the 30 years that this war took place, 3,600 men and women and children lost their lives, thousands more injured in a brutal conflict that is now popularly termed the Troubles. The Troubles ended on the surface in 1999 with the Good Friday Peace Agreement that effectively put an end to the obvious violence and the brutal killings. However, that process of building lasting peace was just beginning. Because peace, again, is not merely the absence of conflict. It is a commitment to the hard work involved in forgiveness, reconciliation, that leads to justice and equality. And that's why the story of Sean and Winston is so remarkable. Two of the men involved in the Troubles are Sean Murray and Winston Irvine. Sean there on your left, Winston on your right. Sean is a nationalist, a Catholic, loyal to Ireland. Winston, a unionist, Protestant, loyal to England. Both of them involved in the same war, on opposite sides, on opposite armies. Both men trained to kill the other person. One of the most stirring moments in our trip was to see these two men in person. Now, 20 years later, after the Good Friday Peace Agreement, not only in the same room together with us, not only sitting next to each other, and not only talking to each other, but now calling each other friends. These two men once embodied global conflict, headline-grabbing global conflict, But now they embody the possibility of global peace because of the peace that first began within their own hearts as they learned how to empathize with the story of the other person. They came to this breakthrough realization that their own personal perspective on the conflict Their own personal view on the violence was not the only valid perspective. Winston said to us at one point, 
He said, we came to realize that mine was not the only narrative. Mine was not the only perspective at play. There were many ways to see this situation, many perspectives through which to view this conflict. And when we came to that understanding, there was a breakthrough. Sean then admitted that while the peace agreement in 1999 settled the conflict on a macro level, on an obvious level, the process of rebuilding and unifying the country would take a lot of hard work. It would take time, it would take leadership, and it would take the steady, gradual rebuilding of trust. And so now... Twenty years later, after the agreement, Sean is now able to say these amazing words. I respect Winston's point of view. I may not agree with him, but I can now see through his eyes. That's remarkable. Made even more remarkable when we think about that possibility at play in our own country. How far-fetched of an idea is it for us to think that we could empathize with people in our own country in a time when we are so bitterly divided, so polarized among so many fronts, polarized along lines of racial reconciliation or, or gender identity or, or partisan politics, when the idea of having just a civil conversation with someone with whom we disagree seems like such a far-fetched idea, how, how is it even possible for us to be able to say to someone, we may not agree, but I can see the situation through your eyes? In fact, someone in our group even posed that question to Sean and Winston. He said, guys, how is this possible? How is it possible for the two of you to come to this amazing conclusion? How could you possibly empathize with someone who thinks so little of you? How could you empathize with the perspective of someone who not only hates your perspective, but hates you? How could you you see the situation through the eyes of someone who dehumanizes you? How? to which Winston offered these words. In fact, his words are so rich, I will read them to you verbatim. He said, In the early days of trying to rebuild peace, in the wake of the Good Friday Agreement, he said there was a huge amount of mistrust, and it took time to learn each other's stories. There were some hurtful conversations, but eventually we realized you'd You don't have to agree with someone to understand them. Trust is built when people see words translated into action because dialogue is what makes us human. The first order of war is to dehumanize the other person because when you dehumanize the other person, it makes it easier to kill them. But the first order of peace is to humanize the other person. And that, eventually, is what builds up trust. They said along the way, we had to fall back on this one recurring question that we were constantly asking ourselves. We had to ask, what is the cost 
if we don't rebuild this trust? What is the cost if we don't engage the other person? And as we watch these two men engage in this conversation throughout the morning, the best way to describe what we were experiencing as clergy colleagues in that room in that moment was wonder. A clear sense of amazement and awe at how there could be such peace between such wolves and lambs, between calves and lions, between such warring factions, now engaging in peace. Isaiah promised it would be possible. Isaiah said that it would be a child who would lead them to the possibility of peace. And on this second Sunday of Advent, we affirm that as Christian people, we believe that that child is Jesus, who would come to offer us a pathway to peace when we find no path. But we can also interpret the words of Isaiah to mean that peace is only possible when we dare to be as children with one another. When we dare to be a a child with such a childlike faith and curiosity that enables us to imagine to dream of the possibility of a world without conflict. When we approach our conflicts with one another with such a childlike openness that we dare to be open to the possibility that there might even be peace within our own hearts and make peace with ourselves. Which leads us to the second of the two stories. This is a story of a Filipino Baptist preacher named Zachary Diote. Zach Diote was a young man living in a small village in the Philippines during the early days of World War II, a small village that unfortunately was right in the sights of the encroaching Japanese army. The elders of the village decided to make a calculated risk to take all of the men in that village and have them leave the barrio and hide in the surrounding jungle with the, with the possibility that when the Japanese army would arrive, they would decide that that village was not a threat to them. It was filled with only women and children, therefore prompting them, hopefully, to skip that village and go on to the next one. Tragically, that calculated risk backfired. When the Japanese forces finally arrived, they were so enraged by the decision of the elders that they decided to take that village and make it an example for the surrounding villagers. By the time the atrocity was over, every house was burnt down, every animal was slaughtered, every woman and child killed. And so when Zach Diote returned from the jungle, along with the other men, he and every other man found their families murdered. At that moment, Diote was filled with rage. He took off for the jungle once again, this time armed with vengeance in his heart, to try to exact revenge upon the Japanese, only to find himself ambushed by them, eventually captured by them, tortured and beaten left for half dead. Under the rains of a brutal monsoon, Zach Diote clawed and crawled his way back into the safety of the jungle, 
where miraculously he survived. Years after World War II, Zach began the long, difficult, very painful process of rebuilding his life. He was remarried. He started a new family. He returned to his work as a Baptist pastor, eventually rising through the ranks of the denomination to become president of the Filipino Baptist Convention. But even decades after World War II, Despite all of the appearances on the outside that he had found healing in his life, he very well knew that just below the surface there was all of the pain and all of the trauma associated with what had happened to him and to his family. As decades passed and nations came to new awareness of what had been done, there came an initiative by the Baptists in Japan to seek reconciliation with their Filipino brothers and sisters. The Filipino Baptist Convention then extended a request that they would send a delegation of Japanese Baptists to the Philippines to begin a new dialogue in which they would confess and repent of the atrocities that their forebears had committed. What it would mean is that at the top of the Filipino Baptist Convention, there would be Zach Diot playing a frontline role in welcoming those Japanese Baptists to Manila. It would require him meeting them at the airport to extend hospitality and welcome them to the conversation. And deep within his own heart, Zach Diot knew he couldn't do it. Every time he thought about the possibility of welcoming the Japanese to his home, to his homeland, instantly the flashbacks, the memories of what he experienced in the village that day filled him with such rage and such grief. As the day approached for the Japanese to arrive, Zach grew increasingly troubled. He was a man in turmoil. His heart was not at peace. He was ripped by conflicting emotions and competing thoughts. He was numb to the pain of the memories. He remembered seeing what he saw that day. But he also remembered the words of Jesus on that Roman cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. There came a moment when a final decision had to be made, and Zach Diot made that decision. At the very last minute, at the very last second, he hailed a taxi to take him to the Manila airport he rushed to the airport knowing that he had to do what he must do before he changed his mind. And so there he was, standing on the tarmac, standing on the runway, with tears brimming in his eyes. He was the first to greet the Japanese pastors as they stepped onto Filipino soil. As he bowed his head, 
and extended his hand in fellowship to them. Real healing began to take place. The pain was still there. The memories would never go away. But a handshake and a smile and a word of hospitality and reconciliation began to set Zach Diote free. From that day forward, he was a truly free man, a man with a heart at peace. Jesus never said that peacemaking would be easy. Isaiah never said peacemaking would be easy. All that either of them promised is that it was possible. Possible for a wolf and a lamb to coexist. Possible for a calf and a lion to lie down together. Possible for warring factions to be able to find resolution in the way that they humanize the other person. No, it's not easy. The pain is still there. The memories will always linger. But by the grace of God and by our own initiative to take some risks, peacemaking is possible. And so if this God who comes to us in Jesus could take two warring men on opposite sides of a civil war and enable them to see with new eyes a respect for the other person. If this same God who comes to us in Jesus on this second day of Advent can help a man deeply conflicted with the pain from his past, this same God can help you with whatever way you are in conflict within your own heart today whatever way that there is tension between you and another person or between you and the uncertainty of your future, even between you and yourself, God can make a way, a peace that comes to you not as the world gives, but a peace within your own heart, a peace that will enable the conflicts of this world to find resolution and a peace that will settle your troubled soul. A peace that is possible. Let us pray. Oh God, we confess to you that we are a people immersed in conflict. We are troubled by the headlines of our time, and we are troubled by the unsettledness within our own souls. Oh God, it is easy for many of us right now to admit the lack of peace within our lives. In fact, many of us wake up in the morning, and the first thing we think about as we, as we anticipate the day and the week ahead is all of the conflict that we are facing. And so we hear these words from Jesus and Isaiah with a kind of skepticism that is born out of years of failed attempts at peace. Oh God, as we make our journey toward Bethlehem again, help us to believe in peace again. Help us to stop believing in a peace that the world can give and to start training our eyesight on a peace that only you can bring, a peace
peace that begins within our own hearts, a peace that comes to us through Jesus, who was sent to bridge the greatest conflict in the history of the world, a conflict between humanity and its separation from you. Help us to believe in that peace so that when we see it, when we experience it, we will be filled with wonder and amazement and be filled with a new desire to make it happen. Thank you, God, for reconciling us to yourself and enabling us to reconcile with one another so that we might find peace within our hearts. Pray for anybody in this sanctuary today or viewing online who is so engrossed in conflict. May they find a way, may you show them the way to take even the small steps to plant the small seeds that will eventually lay the groundwork for the rebuilding of trust and that will blossom into new hopes and possibilities. Thank you, God, for the work of peace within our lives and throughout the world. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our long-expected King, and let all God's people say, Amen.